we have people that have actually been there. We appreciate that. We appreciate you brothers, too. And also, you know, the, the wives, just think of the uh, sacrifice wives make when their husbands travel, as these men do. We have gratitude to Susie and to Ruth for that. When we think about life, it can be described a lot of ways. One way it can be described is just a series of questions that we always have to answer. Now, some of these questions, of course, are rather mundane, like, uh, what should I fix for dinner tonight? Now, that might seem like a simple thing, but since my wife died, that's become a major question for me every day. And uh, Greg and Mark, who are victims of my culinary skills, uh, never seem to complain. But that's a decision that has to be made every day at our house. Uh, what kind of uh, a shirt should I put on in the morning? What television program should I watch? Should I change the oil in my car this week or next week? Should I mow the lawn or take a nap? These decisions are, you know... <laughs> in front of us all the time. Of course, some of them are more major, aren't they? What schools should I attend? What jobs should I seek? Should I submit to this medical therapy or take that medication? Whom should I marry? How should I serve Christ and where? And what church should I join? You know, these are major questions, aren't they? Life just seems to be full of questions. But in the midst of all of these questions, there is one ultimate question that everyone has to answer. And that's the question that Pontius Pilate asked, what shall I do with this Jesus who is called the Christ? Regardless of one's age, regardless of one's gender, regardless of one's marital state, regardless of what one's job might be, regardless of one's age or one's health or one's work situation or one's financial state, whoever we are, Everyone has to face that question and answer it. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? This morning we want to take some time to pose that question and to look at some of the individuals in Scripture who answered that and how they answered it, and then to see how those individuals and their answers are reflected in our age. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Well, the immediate answer that came from the mob when Pilate asked the question was, crucify him, get rid of him. The Jewish establishment cried out, crucify him, because Jesus had interfered with their agenda. He had interfered with their commerce. He had interfered with their private lives. It exposed them as hypocrites. It exposed their avarice. He had exposed the way that they misinterpreted Scripture to avoid the responsibility of the poor, the way they misinterpreted Scripture to avoid the responsibility to take care of their elderly relatives. In short, Jesus had just interfered with their lives and had even condemned the manner in which they sought to lead the nation so the Jewish establishment wanted him dead. Not only did they want him dead, but they also wanted him discredited. And so a crucifixion not only would kill Jesus, 
but it would brand him as a criminal. They were delighted that Jesus was going to be crucified between two thieves. And on the cross they mocked him. They did everything they could to discredit this one, this Jesus, who is called the Christ. And so they cried out, crucify him. Also in that crowd there would have been some of the patriotic Jewish zealots who would have cried out, crucify him. Now, when Jesus was on the earth, there were two significant whirlpools of politics that swirled in the nation. One was in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and Sadducees were constantly uh, contending with one another as to who was going to have the most influence, who was going to rule the nation, whose theology was going to prevail. And of course, that's the establishment of which we spoke of at first. But now to the north, on the other side of Samaria, was the province of Galilee. The Galileans were a fiery group of people, and whatever nation tried to rule them, and many did, they constantly had to struggle with the rebellious nature of the Galileans. And a group that had great influence in Galilee was the Zealot movement. The Zealots were very strong, uh, uh, zealous uh, patriots of the Jews. They were terrorists. They uh, carried a dagger that was called a Sakari. As a matter of fact, that was a name by which they went at some time. And when you became an official member of the Zealot party, you took a pledge that at every opportunity you would slip a knife between the ribs of a publican because the publicans were tax collectors for the Romans. They had tremendous influence in Galilee and were greatly accepted by the Galileans. The Zealots tried to take over the ministry of Jesus and use it to accomplish their own ends. We see that displayed when the feeding of the 5,000 took place, as the zealots must have been present there. After Jesus had fed the 5,000, people were really impressed by this miracle. Luke records this, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Their thought was, we want to fight the Romans. We want to defeat them in military conquest. And if we can just get Jesus to lead our crusade, who can stand against this miracle worker? We will drive the Romans out of Palestine. Jesus refused to be a part of their plan. Not only that, he even strongly spoke against their way of thinking and their mentality. Recall the Sermon on the Mount. You have, said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In the midst of that staying, saying, 
Jesus was referring to one of the Roman laws that said any Roman soldier could approach a citizen of Palestine and compel him to carry his load for one mile. Jesus said, if a man compels you to carry his load one mile, carry it two. The zealots heard Jesus and said, that's nonsense. Love your enemies, that's absurd. A dagger between the ribs is a much better idea. In 1776, Edward Gibbon began publishing what has become one of the great classics of the West, the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And as you read Gibbon, he blames Christianity as one of, not the only, but one of the main things that caused the fall of the Roman Empire. Let me uh, read a quote. As the happiness of a future life is the great object of religion, we may hear without surprise or scandal that the introduction of, or at least the abuse of Christianity, had influence on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. The clergy successfully preached the doctrines of patience and pusillanimity. And by the way, I was thinking, I don't think anybody I've talked to this past week used that word in conversation. But uh, to be pusillanimous means that you are kind, you're timid, you're not aggressive. So anyway, now the active virtues of society were discouraged and the last remains of the military spirit were buried in the cloister. And that's his view, which was exactly the view the zealots had. If we follow the teaching of this man, Jesus, we'll never get rid of the Romans. We must hate our enemies. We must kill our enemies. We must drive them out. And so because Jesus would not allow himself, not only not allow himself to be used by them, but also spoke against the very spirit that they manifested, they too became Jesus' enemies and would join in the cry, crucify him. Now today, even as was true at that time, there are voices of Jesus' enemy crying out, crucify him. Now I hesitate to bring up the homosexual and lesbian issue because it seems every fundamentalist preacher on the radio uses that issue to stir up people to raise money. And I hesitate also to bring it up because of the horrible things that uh, the West Grove Baptist Church is doing to stir hate against homosexuals in our land. Anyone who hates homosexuals does not have the spirit of Jesus Christ. But how can we be silent when there is a homosexual, lesbian, transgender establishment that is doing all that it can to redefine sin and especially to influence the thinking of our youth? At uh, Wheaton, which has often been considered the very bastion of conservative evangelical thought, there now is even a group to forward accepting that as a normal lifestyle. Now, it's interesting, only 2% of Americans are practicing homosexuals. And yet, there is an organization that has an agenda 
to change America's thinking. It's been able to infiltrate, in some cases, control uh, the media, and that's controlling more and more the thinking of our young people, even now in, in our colleges. Uh, one of my favorite children's programs is Dora the Explorer. I don't know if any of you ever watched Dora. That's a cute little kid. <laughs> but uh, Dora, now at the end, you're often moved, uh, urged to go to a particular website. In that website, there's a whole thing about acceptance, and everything's wonderful, but it also throws in that one little thing about sexual orientation, even using children's cartoons. And tragically today, even some churches are forwarding this agenda. And Jesus, by those who have that agenda, views Jesus as an enemy because here's what he said. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the beginning, God made them male and female, and there is not a third or fourth sex, perhaps even a fifth for those who practice bestiality. Now, I want to read a long section of Scripture here, and I hope you won't be bored because it's so important, so important as we consider the culture we're in and God's view of life. Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now, three times in this passage, Paul states, God gave them over. Therefore, God gave them over. He took his restraining hand off. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Again, for this reason God gave them over to grating passions. For their women exchanged a natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire one toward another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 
just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. And this is the third time Paul says it. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Wow. (laughs) That history is very clear to us, isn't it? Even in our own nation, that history is so clear to us. That catalog describes so accurately the culture of the world that most of us inhabit today. And so today, there are organizations, some cases even nations, that are telling Jesus, shut up. And Paul, Jesus' spokesman, shut up. (laughs) In essence, they're crying out, Crucify him. Get him out of the way. Now Joel just told us about the bombing, the hatred. Crucify Jesus. It's okay to say he's a prophet, but declare him to be the Son of God, the divine Redeemer. Crucify him. That was the outcry of Jesus' enemies. And that's the outcry today of everyone who says, Jesus, get out of the way. We don't like what you say. Another person who responded to that question was Pontius Pilate himself. What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? You know, when you read in the Gospels, Pilate did everything he could (laughs) except be brave to avoid crucifying Jesus. He went so far as to say to the Jews, look, I'll make a proposition to you. Here's Barabbas. This man is a, is a murderer. He's a pirate. Everybody knows he's one of the worst men that's ever lived. And here's Jesus. I'll give you one of them. Which one do you want? They said, give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. Pontius Pilate held Christ before them and said, I find no fault in this man. Why do you want me to execute him? But he yielded to the pressure of the mob when they cried out, crucify him. Now, I want to say something to the young people today. Now, you know, sometimes look at me. I'll be 81 in October, and they say, you're an old codger, and you don't know what life is all about. Let me tell you something. It's because I am an old codger, I do know what life is all about. (laughs) I've lived it. (laughs) And there's nobody that has made more mistakes than I've made. So I want to speak today to the young people. You're surrounded by a mob. You're surrounded by a mob that many of whom at least would like to see Jesus out of the way. Part of that mob, they just mocked Jesus. 
Part of it just ignores them. And some mock you if you will not reject Jesus Christ. Some of you were baptized at an early age, and you really meant it at the time. And yet, as the years went by and you started facing various things in middle school and junior high and high school and college, you begin to question things. You began to want friends, and you didn't want to walk alone. And so you began to compromise. How do you compromise? Well, you compromise, first of all, in your language. You compromise in the kind of stories you tell. You compromise in your attitude. And then you start to compromise in your behavior. And before long, you're absolutely no different than those around you who cry out, crucify him. Let me speak of my own life. I never had relations, sexual relations with any woman other than my wife. I've never been drunk. Well, one time. That one time was when Wesley Klein and I were installing a Formica countertop in a house and the ether of the glue got to us and we walked out in the yard and fell down and laughed a while. (laughs) So if that's being drunk, I've been drunk once. (laughs) I don't plan to be, ever. (laughs) But there was a time when because of the friends I associated with, my speech became ungodly. And I've, some of you know my story, the real battle I had to fight to overcome cursing and some of the other things that were manifested in my speech. But you know what's interesting? When I was in that, I thought, even though I'm doing what these guys do, I'm really not like they are, but I was just like them. <laughs> you see? And young people, I know what a battle it is to stay faithful and true when you want friends and sometimes when you have to walk alone and you don't want to walk alone. I challenge you, do not crucify Jesus. Don't become a Pontius Pilate. Do not let the pressure of the mob turn you away from your Lord. Some of you are in the workplace, and the pressure is often very great to behave like Pontius Pilate, to give in to the pressure and the influence and sometimes even the intimidation. People you work for may want you to lie to a customer. They may want to pressure you to participate in social activities that you really just with a good conscience can't because you know Jesus is watching. You may be pushed to do something unethical in order to promote business. I have a good friend who has an air conditioning company. I meet with him from time to time. He's, I don't know any man in the world who is more ethical than this man. His accountant scolds him because he so accurately reports income that nobody would ever know about. And he said, Jim, it's interesting, when I was first starting in business, how many people said to me, When you get involved in business, you have to put your Christianity on the shelf. Thank God he has refused to do that. 
One time in my life, I was a licensed insurance salesman. And I got out of that in a hurry because I could not manipulate people the way the company wanted me to manipulate people. I don't put myself forth as a model. I've fallen enough times. But the mob will put pressure on us to be like Pontius Pilate and to give in and to crucify Jesus. Anytime we find ourselves in a place where we're giving in, we're behaving like Peter even. Remember after Jesus' arrest, Peter in the garden and more than one person said, you're one of his. I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. Even to the point he cursed to show that he was not a follower of Jesus. The pressure of the crowd got to him. Here are two passages from the book of Hebrews that should always loom large in our awareness. Hebrews 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. This version says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. I think there's a question about the term impossible in the Greek. Since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Think about that, believer. Once you turn from Christ, you have crucified him once again. What a sobering thought. Chapter 10. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If we go on sinning willfully after we have come to a knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for our sins, but only the terrifying expectation of judgment, the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses, died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the blood of the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? We know him who has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do not let the mob influence you to forsake Jesus. In spite of Peter's later momentary defection earlier with great courage he had tried to defend Jesus with a sword Matthew 26 behold one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear this is when they came to arrest Jesus 
And we're told in Scripture that almost all of those with Jesus had swords. One of them whipped out his sword, and John tells us that was Peter. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Don't you think I could appeal to my Father? and He will at once put at my disposal more than ten legions of angels. Now a legion in the Roman army was 1,200 people. So that would be a bunch of angels, wouldn't it? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen this way? Peter was going to advance the kingdom of God with a sword. Jesus said, put it up, Peter. That's not the way to do it. The word that the angel gave Zechariah for Zerubbabel is appropriate in every age. This he said to me, this is the word of the Lord, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That is such a hard thing for people to accept, isn't it? The most obvious violation of that is the Crusades. You know, in Peter's action, what we really see is an effort of a man to do what God wants done, but do it without relying on God. This doesn't mean we're just to sit around and do nothing, but the advancement of the kingdom of God takes place as we cooperate with Him and the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 1.21, Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now, the King James says the foolishness of preaching. The Greek word is kerygma, which means the content of the preaching. So we're not supposed to go out with swords. We do not use manipulative sales techniques, but we present the gospel and we live lives that, as Paul wrote to Titus, lives that are so beautiful and so lovely that they adorn the gospel of God. And the Holy Spirit anoints the good news. And the Holy Spirit within us causing that life that adorns the gospel to touch and influence and move people into the kingdom. It's interesting that countries that Joel has just described, the believers there know that there's only one way that the kingdom of God can be advanced, and that's if the Holy Spirit does it. And sometimes it's through miracles, sometimes it's through other things. But in our country, where we can meet every Sunday, where we can raise enough money if we want to to build some huge edifice and call it a church... Sometimes the only kingdom that we're building is our own. But we have such freedom. And and in our country, it is so easy to slip into that thing of this can-do attitude. We can do it. We can do it. We have the power. We have the tools. We have the money. We have the skill. We have the cleverness. We have learned how to manipulate people. And so instead of trusting in the Holy Spirit, 
and doing the work God's way, we, like Peter, take up the sword and use human methods. There were some who answered that question by acknowledging who Jesus was and is. As our Lord was moving toward Calvary, carrying the cross, and they finally put it upon the shoulder of Simon of Cyrene, Jesus was so weak he could not bear it. We're told that there was a great crowd that followed, and in their midst was a rather sizable coterie of women who had followed all the way from Galilee, ministering to the needs of Jesus and his disciples. Some of them were wealthy women who had contributed money to provide for their needs. John seemed to be with them. It's interesting, in the midst of that time, just after they gave the cross to Simon of Cyrene, Jesus turned to these women who were grieving and said, Do not grieve for me. Grieve for yourselves. And then he spoke prophetically of the destruction of Jerusalem that was going to happen 40 years later. You know, it's interesting as you think of the cross of Jesus that there are only two individuals who spoke out about Jesus' identity. One of these was one of the thieves on the cross. Remember at first, both of them mocked him, mocked him, mocked him. And then something happened in the heart of one of these thieves. Was it what he observed in Jesus? Or was he one whom God, in an act of grace, had targeted for salvation? We don't know. But he stopped mocking. And he spoke to the other thief and said, Stop talking that way. We're dying because we need to, not this man. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. The other one who confessed Jesus was the centurion who commanded the cohort that crucified him. After Jesus died, this centurion looked up and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. What did the Father do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Fifty days later, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell. Peter preached and he charged the mob with murdering the Son of God. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God, this is what how God responded, has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? God the Father said, He's exalted. Hebrews 1 tells us He seated Him. For Jesus was seated by the right hand of the throne of God the Father. I would ask you today, as I ask myself, 
what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Oh God, please tap me on the shoulder any time I unconsciously begin to move in a direction that is saying, crucify him. Oh God, it is my heart that he be absolutely Lord of my life. But as you've written in the Psalms, you know I am dust. (laughs) And as dust, I'm far from perfect. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? We have to answer that question every day. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the assurance that we have of salvation because this one loved us enough to do with himself what had to be done to redeem us from our sins. Through Jesus, amen.